Well, now to our special series, War on Cancer, highlighting new fronts in the battle against the disease. I tell them all the time, it's okay to fight. It's okay to fear. It's okay to cry. But it's better to fight. And everyone at the American Cancer Society is fighting right there with you. So you've been battling cancer? I've been battling cancer now. I've had it for almost probably 11 years if we go all the way back. Mm -hmm. The words we use to talk about cancer, they matter, not just to those who have the disease or anyone trying to make sense of it, but all of us, because these words have become part of our vernacular. They not only reveal our values and beliefs, but they have a certain power to them, ranging from the power to inform and inspire to the potential to misinform and cause harm. And it's this latter impact that's the focus of this podcast, mainly because it's not covered much by many journalists, and also because it's an important example of how misleading media messages, in this case, the prevailing narrative of cancer, can actually lead to harm. Let's start this story with Catherine O'Brien. She was diagnosed nine years ago with stage four metastatic breast cancer. She's now a breast cancer advocate and earlier this month was attending the world's largest cancer conference, the American College of Clinical Oncology, or ASCO, in Chicago. When I was checking in, I picked up my badge, and I was given two ribbons, one that said patient advocate, and one because I had indicated that I have cancer that said survivor. And I felt conflicted about this because I will not survive metastatic um, breast cancer. Um, I will die with or from this disease. I do not consider myself a survivor. And calling me a survivor doesn't make me one. Clearly, a badge at a medical meeting is not a media message. But O'Brien's story does serve as an important reminder that much of the cancer language we may accept as simply the norm is anything but normal for those living with cancer. And some statistical context helps here. Keep in mind that about 3 million American women have a history of breast cancer. The vast majority of these millions of cases won't spread beyond nearby lymph nodes and will respond well to treatment. In contrast, there's only about 155,000 American women currently living with metastatic breast cancer. So, just who qualifies as a survivor? Um, I think it depends where you are. Um, if you have been successfully treated for cancer and completed your treatment, then survivor is a powerful word. Um, you've gone through an ordeal, you have come through it, and hopefully all will be well for you. That's not my world. Um, there's no cure for metastatic breast cancer. Treatment is for life. And I think the challenge is if we call everyone a survivor, it tends to minimize what my experience is. And potentially mislead people, or at least oversimplify what O'Brien calls a very unsettling reality, that about 40,000 American women will die this year from metastatic breast cancer. Think about that. If I said 40,000 metastatic breast cancer survivors died in the United States last year, how could that be true? I mean, that country, if they survived, why, if they were survivors, why did they die? You know, if we suggest that everything, it just takes some stick-to-itiveness to defeat cancer, that's not fair. I mean, that's, that, that really minimizes the situation of thousands and thousands of uh, cancer patients.
that stick to itness, or even defeating cancer, brings up one of the more pervasive and potentially harmful narratives in all of cancer, or should I say the war or battle against cancer. Now we are about to enter the world of media messages. Check out this ad from MD Anderson, which last year was rated by US News and World Report as the number one cancer center in the country. We're not scared of you anymore. We know you better than you know yourself. My dad will survive you. See, this is a fight. It's a battle. And we're an army, thousands strong. And cancer? You're going to lose. And we are going to win. Wow. Again, breast cancer advocate Catherine O'Brien. I can see why such uh, phrasing would be attractive because um, cancer... Uh, on an emotional level, it's very frightening. Um, and you want to give people hope. Um, everybody needs hope. I understand that. I think what is very challenging, though, is if you wanted to really tell people what cancer is, you have to explain cancer is cellular division that's gone out of control. But I think in the absence of explaining the, you know, the rationale, the actual science behind the disease, we suggest to people that cancer is almost a personal failing in terms of, or not necessarily a failing, but something that we have more control over than we necessarily do. It's almost like the little engine that could, you know, I think I can, I think I can, I know I can, I know I can. Well, I mean, that works in a little kid's book, but, uh, that is not how cancer works. It's playing off of fear. Now you're about to meet two women with breast cancer who've been part of our editorial team for many years. Mandy Starr is on the other end of the breast cancer spectrum from Catherine O'Brien, a survivor, according to some, eight years out from a double mastectomy for a stage one diagnosis at age 31. And you don't want to think about the negatives. You don't want to think about, well, is this going to kill me or is this going to shorten my life? And so you tend to want to believe messages more, I think, when you're in that vulnerable position than if you were healthy and didn't have a diagnosis of cancer. Um, humans like control, especially when it's your own body and you're just kind of like, you feel sort of like this betrayal that your body is somehow betraying you, that you... you you're vulnerable, you want the sense of control, and then this is where the snake oil salesmen show up trying to sell you things or sell you a cure or sell you something that you feel like you're now going to to take back that control. And I think the, the battle motifs are part of that. So I think for some people who, if this is what keeps them going, I don't think that is a bad thing at, at all. I am more concerned with them being taken advantage of. And if there's one part of the media landscape that Starr considers egregious in this regard, it's the talk shows. These doctors and Dr. Oz, these um, celebrity talk shows, you know, who come off as experts. Let's move on to natural cancer fighting foods. It's perhaps the most powerful place we can look for solutions. And you're a world expert in this. So walk us through three typical foods we should be eating daily. Right, so let's start with tomatoes. They taste great, and they have cancer fighters called lycopene and beta-cryptoxanthin. Oh, my goodness. So cook I'll be a quiz later, folks. Beta-cryptoxanthin? So beta-cryptoxanthin. And cooked tomatoes actually can cut cancer risks in men for prostate cancer and in women for breast cancer. That is a huge problem because they have a huge audience. 
those shows, I feel, are some of the worst ones, the worst offenders out there because they will either tout products that they may have a financial incentive in and not disclose that, or they'll just repeat some of the messages that you may be hearing on mainstream news or in the press right now, and then going even further with that narrative, you know, the false hope narrative. You have someone saying, oh, if you do this or if you engage in this activity, this would lower your risk for cancer or this could prevent you from getting cancer. And it's stuff that hasn't been scientifically proven. I feel those can be some of the most harmful messages out there. Um, I feel like what gets lost, I think, is just the rational thinking (laughs) and rational thought of, I don't hear those rational messages anymore in the media. But I'd like to get back to the warrior or battle imagery for a bit. Christine Norton is a co-founder of the Minnesota Breast Cancer Coalition and was treated for stage one breast cancer 28 years ago. Like everyone I interviewed for this podcast, she had no problem with cancer patients using the warrior imagery if they found it helpful. But she brought up what she felt was another potential harm of such wording. I think the pervasiveness of the battle imagery does place at best an expectation and at worst a burden on people to feel that they must battle, they must uh, compete, they can't give up. Norton sees this as potentially problematic for people with terminal cancer of any kind. I think it possibly has the potential to cause harm uh, in the sense that as people near the end of their life, it's been proven in multiple studies to be beneficial for people to discuss how they would like their last time to be. So do they want a particular type of treatment? Do they want a particular type of care? How long might they want to continue treatment? Um, All of these big decisions. And if this battle imagery is so pervasive and has been embraced by so many, then it seems that that imagery seems to preclude even the desire to talk about those end-of-life decisions. It's almost like some people are made to feel, oh, I can't think or talk about those end-of-life things because I'm supposed to be battling this. I'm throwing in the towel. I'm raising the white flag of surrender if I even talk about treatment at the end of my life or lack of, you know, I don't want treatment at the end of my life. But Ellen Miller's sonnet has noticed it's not enough to be a warrior. You have to be a happy warrior. Jimmy Holland, who was the mother of psycho-oncology, passed away several months ago, talked about the tyranny of positive thinking. And I think that's very real. I think we say to people, if you think positive, you'll get better. If you try harder, you'll get better. And I believe that's really unfair. Sonnet works for a national support group called Cancer Care. She's also been the vice president of marketing at Memorial Sloan Kettering, New York's renowned cancer research and treatment center. She's a good person to ask about something that's intrigued me for years. We talk about managing our diabetes or treating our heart disease. 
But we don't battle our diabetes or beat the enemy called heart disease. What is it about cancer that lends itself to such loaded language? And one possible explanation may be that cancer is perceived as a uh, as kind of invasion of the body snatchers. It's a it's a very often a tangible tumor that is removed, and cancer has this mystery about it. We don't really understand it. We haven't tamed it. Uh, it's hundreds of different diseases. There seems to be no right or wrong answers. I think that it's much more complicated, and so the sense of loss of control is huge. And let's not forget that the World Health Organization attributes about one in six deaths globally to cancer. In the U.S. alone, the estimated economic costs related to cancer are over a trillion dollars. While some of us see the human cost as devastating, others inevitably see opportunity. Cancer is big business. Big business means big marketing, and big marketing means big words. Words that, according to oncologist Vinay Prasad, cannot just influence drug sales, but public opinion. And what bothers Prasad is this language starts very early and very upstream in the development of cancer drugs. I sometimes feel as if that one of the major purposes of the oncologic conferences is to, years before you read trial publication, to start shaping public opinion around a drug, um, to start introducing the idea that this is going to be a, a breakthrough or, or a miracle or a game changer or a revolution, years before we even have trial results. Um, so that when we do, it's very difficult for people to say, um, you know, these are okay. They're good, but they're not great. It's, it makes that position almost untenable. These big, eye-catching, usually hyperbolic words are something we run into almost every single day at healthnewsreview.org. That certainly qualifies them as part of our cancer vernacular. But what ultimately matters is how do they affect cancer patients? Prasad feels these bold promises certainly affect his patients when they are trying to weigh the benefits versus risks of a cancer therapy. Now, when you take such a person and you put them in a world where year after year they've been inculcated in this language that these drugs are game changers and miracles and revolutions and cures, um, I think what you're really doing is robbing that person of the autonomy to make that choice because their understanding of the benefits become distorted and exceed what the true benefits are, and thus they may be much more willing to tolerate harms that if they really had a clear understanding of what the drug provides, they may decide that, you know, they don't want to keep taking the drug. Um, so I think it has this direct human impact to use language that I believe is, you know, inappropriate. Um, to me, a drug is transformative and a game changer when um, the diagnosis no longer evokes uh, sadness and fear. That, to me, is what we should reserve this language for. But right now, as of 2018, it doesn't seem we're very reserved or cautious or even comfortable with what's become a fairly entrenched narrative surrounding cancer. We have survivors beating or conquering an enemy. We have obituaries telling us our friends or neighbor died, quote, after a long battle with cancer. There are talk shows and advocacy groups and major medical centers 
selling sexy promises, and pitching false hope. And lest we forget, in the midst of all this, there are unique people with unique cancers facing very unique circumstances. At the very least, I think one take-home message from all this is that we ought to be more careful about how we talk about cancer and more skeptical of those who are careless. But that's just one thought. Let's close out this podcast by hearing more from our five interviewees. Patients have a tough road to hoe, and they certainly are allowed to have their ups and downs. And their point of view or their mood does not necessarily drive outcomes. Uh, and it's, it's horrible to put that burden on patients. There is a, a huge potential of harm in which the way the media portrays cancer, especially when they are focusing on any little thing that they consider to be a breakthrough or a cure. I, I think that they know that those stories, they're clickbait. You know, they're, they're going to be clicked on, they're going to be read, they're going to increase traffic to sites, or if you're watching on TV, you're going to tune in if you hear that word, cure. People should be able to use whatever language they'd want, but providers should be able to provide language that I think empowers more people, um, and that tends to be more accurate language. And, you know, I would move away from all of these kind of adjectives and move to kind of more numerical descriptions of the data. I, I like to give ranges. They, they do, on average, between X and X months. Um, and if they didn't take the pill, it would be X and X, or it would be Y and Z months, you know, to give ranges, to, to portray, um, you know, what are the plausible effects that this could have, um, rather than get bogged down in these words that are very loaded, um, that different people may use differently and feel differently about. Cancer is not, as much as we want to personify it, I'm going to kick cancer's ass. That's not how it works. If it helps them, then, then use it, you know, but I don't want the language or the imagery to be a barrier to someone saying, now, in 2018, I don't want to have that treatment because I said that in 1990 and my oncologist didn't push back at all. Uh, for me personally, it's the quality of my life and not the length of my life. This podcast is a production of healthnewsreview.org. It's produced at our institutional home, the School of Public Health at the University of Minnesota, along the banks of the mighty Mississippi River. I'm Michael Joyce. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>